welcome, and thank you for listening to the Bellevue Sermon Podcast. Today's message comes to you from the pulpit of Bellevue Baptist Church in Gadsden, Alabama, through our Sunday morning preaching ministry. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you, and that the Lord would use it for His glory. Amen. What a wonderful time of worship we've had together this morning. If you will, go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Again, that is Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. And this morning we're going to look at a sermon that is titled, Who is Like the Lord? Today we are wrapping up our Advent study by looking at a sort of response to the Advent season. But As you're turning, I'd like to begin our time together by reading from the Psalms, where the question is once again asked, who is like the Lord? Listen to Psalm 89, verses 8 through 13. It says, O Lord of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world in all its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand and high is your right hand. Here in Psalm 89, we read of God being praised for his power and might. That he rules the seas, scatters his enemies, owns everything, and created everything. This is praising God for his power. And this is a frequent refrain in Scripture, that God is to be praised because he is the almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe. But today I want us to focus in on Micah's line of questioning here in Micah chapter 7. Because in the verses immediately preceding ours today in Micah 7, Micah praises God for his power. But Micah asks the question, who is like the Lord in relation to God's mercy and his grace? So let's look together at Micah chapter 7 verses 18 through 20. So we'll see there is no one like the God of our salvation and that he alone is worthy of all the honor and glory we can give. So if you're willing and physically able, please stand in honor, reverence, the reading of God's holy word. Be reading from the ESV. You follow along in your translation. The prophet Micah says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You'll show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning like Micah, like Moses, and like the psalmist. 
declaring there is none like you. Lord, we pray that as we look into your word this morning, that you would reveal yourself through your word, that we would see that there is truly no one like you. You would show us that you are incomparable. Lord, that you would show us that your grace and mercy are beyond anything that we can think and imagine. Lord, it is beyond, again, all comparison. Lord, you're worthy of all that we can bring, all of the honor, all of the glory, all of the praise. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would, again, reveal yourself through your word to us today. Lord, where we fall short of your word, that you would convict us. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us through your word. You would challenge us. You would shape us and mold us and equip us so that we can be the people and the church that you would have us to be. Father, we just ask your blessing on this time we have together today. Lord, I pray you would move me out of the way. Use me as a mouthpiece to proclaim your message to your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, again, Micah asked this question, who is like the Lord? Now, this is the last we read of Micah's prophecy. These are the last words of the book of Micah. And, and we know Micah has told us so much up to this point. Um, as we have worked through this book, we have seen so much of what Micah has told us. Specifically, he's warned the corrupt people of their sin and the coming judgment that they would face. He has pointed his hearers to their need for a perfect and flawless prophet, priest, and king. He's told them about the church of the Messiah. He has explained what is required of us as people of God. But after all of that, this is how Micah concludes his book. And that's significant. You see, this ending is sort of a hymn. It's a a hymn of praise. And in this hymn, Micah is pouring out praise to the Lord because of his unique grace and mercy to his people. And what this shows us uh, just very clearly in the form here is that the clear and really the only response to the promises of Advent is to praise God. After all of those promises that he has been telling the people of, Micah's response is to sing a hymn of praise. Let me tell you, if we can come out of the Advent and Christmas season without singing the praises of our God, then there's something wrong with us. We we should be shouting it from the rooftops and going and telling it on the mountain because God has been gracious to us. All of these promises that he has made have been kept. And we see that fulfilled on Christmas. But Micah's point here in this hymn is that there is an exceptionality to God. In other words, God is exceptional. He's unique. He's wonderful and amazing and there's no one like him. But this is not just to say that there's no one like him in a normal sense. For instance, I have people tell me sometimes, uh, I had a person tell me, you are one of a kind. And they weren't saying that in a nice way. It was just a a nicer way of saying you're weird. This is not the same way that uh, we, for instance, would say no two snowflakes are the same. Or no two fingerprints are the same, right? They're, They're different. Every one of them is unique. It's not the same thing. You see, here what we're saying is not just that God has something small or some attribute that makes him different. No, what Micah is saying and what we are saying along with Micah is that nothing can even compare with God. 
He's so different that there is nothing like him. He is exceptional and amazing and awesome. And yet so many people don't understand that aspect of God. We might say, oh, yeah, you know, our God is an awesome God. But we don't truly think that through. We overuse the words awesome and amazing so much that we've really watered down their meaning to the point that I think we fail to capture just how awesome and amazing God is. I've told you before about the, uh, again, the watering down of that term uh, about how everything is awesome from the food and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I had an example of this happen to us a while back when we were on a family trip. Uh, in September, we went to a preaching conference in Atlanta, and we were staying in a hotel, and uh, you know, traveling with little children is a, is a whole thing, and it's a lot of fun. Um, but I was standing in the bathroom in the hotel one morning getting ready, and Kyria ran up to me, and she goes, Wow, Daddy, that is amazing. And I said, well, what is amazing, sweetheart? And she says, you are brushing your teeth. That is amazing. Now, obviously, the wonder of a child is a sweet thing. But I think we tend to do the same thing on a grown-up scale. We look at the mundane things of this world and we say, wow, that's awesome. That's amazing. And all the while, we forget that the God of the universe is beyond comparison in his greatness. And the best that we can come up with is, oh, yeah, God's awesome. Some things are amazing, and other things are truly amazing. God is truly amazing because he's exceptional and unique, and there is none like And Micah points that out here in a couple of distinct ways. Uh, Micah shows the uniqueness of God by explaining his grace and mercy. And so what I want to do is is I want to show you three elements of God's character in salvation that makes him truly unique and worthy of all of our praise. Three unmatched characteristics of God. The first is that he is slow to anger. Psalm 103.8 famously says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This idea that God is slow to anger is a, it's a common statement in Scripture. And it's almost always specifically linked to God being merciful and gracious and uh, abounding in steadfast love. But Micah deals with this very neatly here in his hymn of praise. Micah's question is, Who is like the Lord, pardoning iniquity, and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Thus, the question really is, who is like the Lord in mercy? We remember that iniquity and transgression are really just kind of different words for sin, right? They're sort of different angles of the word sin. Iniquity references that sort of twistedness that lives in the life of a sinner. It's what's referenced in Psalm 51, right? This this twistedness that is in us because of our depravity. Transgression literally is to cross the line. It's, It's disobedience of God's word and God's law. It's when we fail to do what God has called us to do, and instead we cross the line and do that which God has told us we should not do. It's transgression. And here we are told that for the remnant of his inheritance, 
For the people God has set His grace and love upon, the people that that God chose to save before the foundation of the world, for those whom He loves, God pardons iniquity and passes over transgression. I think most of us are familiar with the term pardon. Pardoning, we know, is when a legal conviction is forgiven and rights are restored. A lot of times we tend to think of it commonly just as as forgiveness, right? That uh, whatever we're convicted of is thrown out. But in reality, the beautiful part about a pardon legally is that your rights are restored. Passing over should make sense as well. Again, this is the whole idea of the Passover. In the Passover, what happened was that instead of visiting the Israelites in righteous judgment for sin, God passes over. Same is true for us. Instead of visiting us in righteous judgment for our sin, God passes over. The thing about both of these images is that they assume guilt. In other words, the question of whether or not we're guilty is not even a question. We are. God would be perfectly within his rights to judge and punish all of us, but instead he pardons and passes over. Who is like this God? When we should be destroyed, he sends his son to bear the punishment so that we can be pardoned and restored to the family of God. Christ's coming, his living a sinless life and taking the punishment we deserved on the cross is the only way we are pardoned. Who is like the Lord who would give up his one and only son to save us? We forget about this because I I think we so often think about this in the wrong question. You know, over the years, people have often asked the question, how could God save some and not others? How could a loving God save some people and not others? And, And I know where that question comes from, but I think it's the wrong question. The question should be, how could a just and holy God save any of us? Why would a just and holy God save any sinner that has rebelled against him and spit in his face time and time again? The fact that God saves any of us is a testimony to his wonderful mercy and grace because we are sinful and yet instead of snuffing us out in wrath, God is merciful. He's slow to anger. He does not retain his anger forever, Micah says. Why? Because he delights in steadfast love. Now, I've told you earlier in our study through Micah that uh, the word for steadfast love here is, is hesed, right? It's, it's the word for covenant loyalty. Whenever we think of it, we, we should think of the fact that God is faithful to complete his plan to save us. Basically, that God told from the beginning that he would save us and then he has been loyal to that promise ever since. It's a promise, again, ultimately, of mercy. Basically, the reason that God is slow to anger and that his anger is not retained forever is that he delights in loyalty, grace, and mercy. But notice what this means. This means that there is grace and mercy for the one in Christ, but for those who are not saved, don't just assume that God will be gracious later. In fact, if you have your Bible open to Micah chapter 7, probably on the next page is Nahum. Nahum 1.3 says this. Nahum 1.3 says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, 
and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. The text will go on to talk about mountains quaking before him, hills melt. Who can stand before him? Who can endure the heat of his anger, his wrath? But the Lord is good. Stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. Nahum's point is sort of the opposite side of the coin from Micah here. The only way that the guilty can be pardoned is through the work of Christ. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, God has graciously allowed you to hear the gospel this morning, and we call you to repent and believe in Christ. Because if you do not, notice what Nahum says, God will by no means clear the guilty. God is gracious beyond compare. He is merciful beyond compare. But do not think that he is also not just and holy beyond compare. But if you're a believer here this morning, if you have been pardoned, you should sing God's praises. You should wonder at your salvation. Now notice I didn't say wonder about. If you're a believer and you're secure, I'm not telling you you need to doubt that. But what I am saying is that we should wonder at it. We should be awestruck by God's grace and mercy to us because we didn't deserve it or earn it. That God is gracious and good. Aren't we thankful that God is not like us? You know, if we had to describe humanity as a whole, I think we'd often say we are quick to anger, quick to judge, and slow to mercy. We're quick to get frustrated and angry. I mean, just drive down Megan or Rainbow Drive. We're quick to judge, and we are very slow to be merciful. But there is none like God who pardons iniquity and passes over transgression for his people. There is none like God who is slow to anger and delights in mercy and grace. Micah says that's not the only reason. Micah continues. And secondly, we see here this morning, the second kind of unmatched characteristic is that he is powerfully compassionate. Not only is God slow to anger, but he is powerfully compassionate. Micah says that God will again have compassion on his people. Micah had told them judgment is coming, but God will not be angry forever. And rather, God will be compassionate. And again, we have to ask, aren't we thankful that God is compassionate? It seems to be a sort of opposite again to anger here. Instead of looking on us in anger and wrath, God has looked on us with compassion. And this is something that Jesus would explicitly demonstrate in his earthly ministry. In Matthew 9, 36, Jesus is looking out over the crowds and 9, 36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Mark, we see that he has compassion on the leper. You know, I think so often in our culture today, we tend to think of compassion as a weak thing or a weakness. We have that pirate mentality of no quarter and no mercy. But compassion is not weak. And specifically here in the case of God, this compassion is powerful. 
Powerful to do what? Well, listen to what God compassionately does. He will tread our iniquities underfoot and cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Literally, the idea here is that God will trample over and subdue our twistedness and sin, and he will throw all of our sins into the depths of the ocean. Now, the ocean is pretty deep. We know a very small amount, actually, about the oceans and what's in them and what's going on there. But the average depth is estimated to be something like three miles deep. Whereas the deepest points in the ocean, again, estimated, are somewhere around 36,000 feet deep. And God is using the image of the ocean floor. Micah says, God will cast our sins to the ocean floor, to the depths, to the deep. He will trample them underfoot. This is all to say that God will defeat sin and he will take it away. But Micah is not alone in this message. The prophet Ezekiel said something similar. Ezekiel 18.22 says, None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. This is talking about, again, the, the truth of the gospel. That for the person who believes in Christ, for the person who repents of his sin, none of those transgressions that they've committed will be remembered against them. They'll be removed. Furthermore, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 103, verses 12 through 14, That as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. So once again, we see that God will remove sin from us and that this is done out of compassion for God's people. He says, listen, as far as the east is from the west, I will remove them. Why? Because as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Here, why will God tread our iniquities underfoot and cast all our sins into the depths of the sea? Because he is compassionate. And the way that God does this is through Christ bearing the punishment we deserved. Christ defeated sin on the cross. He gave us victory over sin. Not that we are now totally perfect, but God has removed those sins from us in that he has defeated sin in such a way he's destroyed the power, the guilt, and the penalty of sin. Through Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God is sanctifying the believers so that our sins no longer have power over us. We're no longer a slave to sin, but rather a slave to God. We're a new creation. And even though our flesh is still sinful and fallen, Sin does not totally enslave the believer. The guilt and shame of sin has been destroyed and the penalty has been borne and paid for by Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. The point is that in other words, Christ took the penalty and gave us his righteousness. Here when we read of this, that God is powerfully compassionate on us. 
He will tread our iniquities underfoot, cast our sins into the depths of the sea. So often, I think we, again, tend to think that our our sins are treading us underfoot. We, We look at this like Paul and we say, well, what I don't want to do, I'm doing, and what I don't want to do, or what I don't want to do, I'm doing, and what I do want to do, I'm not doing. But yet we see here and we read that God in his compassion has trampled over those sins. He has given us the victory in Christ. He has cast those sins into the depths of the ocean. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. And this is all only possible because God looked on his sinful creatures with compassion and sent his son to pay the price. You know, when I see sin, I have this tendency to get immediately, viscerally angry. And we realize there is a place, especially for the Lord, who looks upon sin in anger and wrath. But we must be thankful that God looked on us with compassion and said, I will save them. Who is like the Lord? Pardons iniquity. Passes over transgression. Who has compassion. Treads our iniquities underfoot. Casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Thirdly, we see here this morning that God is fully faithful. It's our final Point that, that God is fully faithful. As he has at multiple points in this book, Micah connects the promises in his prophecy to the promises that God made to Abraham and to Jacob. Verse 20, Micah's point is that God would do as he had sworn from the beginning. He'd be faithful to his people. He would do what he said he would do. We know that he did what he said he would do. Throughout the prophets into the New Testament, we see time and time again where the Bible points to the fact that God promised to the patriarchs, right? He promised to people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that promise was fulfilled in Christ. The Bible gives praise to God for that faithfulness. Time and again, whenever we see that God has kept his word, he's faithful. We realize that God has never said something and then not delivered. God has never promised and then uh, been found lacking. He's always faithful. He always keeps his promises. He always fulfills his word. He keeps his covenant. He delights in it after all. The Bible gives him praise for that. And we should too. In Exodus 15, Moses sings to the Lord because he has been faithful to fulfill his promises to Moses and the Israelites. If I ever hear a man tell me that they uh, don't think singing is very manly, I point them to that one. Moses, this powerful man before the Lord, he comes and he sings to the Lord because he has been faithful to Fulfill his promises, and Moses says, This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God. 
and I will exalt him. And Moses goes on to say this in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Along with Micah, Moses here is connecting the fact that he is not only his God, but he is the God of his fathers. God is not only being faithful to Moses in that moment to deliver them from Egypt, but he had been faithful to Abraham, and he would always be faithful. Who is like you, Lord? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And Moses continues to sing not only about what God had done, but about what God would do. How he would plant his people on his mountain. My point here, though, is that when confronted with God's faithfulness through the ages, and what he knew God would be faithful to do in the future, Moses sang, Who is like you, O Lord? You know, throughout this entire Advent season, we've been confronted with the faithfulness of God. We just look at what we've seen here in Micah. We've seen in Micah that what God promised, he did. One such example, the most easy and obvious one, is back when we were in Micah 5 and we saw that Micah prophesied that God would send the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. God promised to send his son to be born in Bethlehem and redeem his people, and Jesus did just that. The promise was fulfilled. God is faithful. We've seen that God is faithful. He's a God that keeps his promises faithfully. We can count on him. And I'm sure that if we started polling people in this room, we would have story after story after story of how God has been faithful in our lives as well. But when we're confronted with that faithfulness, how do we respond? Do we respond as Micah and Moses by saying there is no one like God? He's worthy of all my praise and all the glory. Or do we treat him as commonplace, taking him for granted? This year as we end and we reflect back on all the things that, that we've done this year, all the ways that God has been faithful through whatever it is that we faced, my hope and my prayer is that you look back over the year and you say, who is like the Lord? And as we look back over our lives at the end of them, we say, who is like the Lord? And that we might sing for all eternity. Who is like the Lord? There's absolutely no reason for us not to recognize the unique wonders of our God and to praise him with all of our being. So we've seen this morning that God is uniquely slow to anger, powerfully compassionate, and fully faithful. He alone is all of this. There's nothing even comparable to the greatness of God. And so we have a responsibility to worship the Lord. He is faithful. He will pardon his people and he will righteously judge the wicked. If you're not a believer in Christ, throw yourself on his mercy. He delights to show his mercy and grace. 
Trust in Christ, repent of your sins, and be saved. Join the chorus of the saints worshiping him. But if you are among the pardoned and if you are saved by God's grace, if your sins have been cast to the depths of the sea, then we owe him everything. And that starts by recognizing that there is no one like our God. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you once more this morning realizing that you alone are worthy of all our worship. Lord, that you have pardoned us. You're God who delights in grace and mercy. And Lord, for that, we realize we must be thankful for we are totally dependent upon it. As we sang earlier, we depend on you for everything. For the next breath that we take, and most importantly, Lord, for the salvation we have in Christ. Were it not for your greatness and compassion, we would have no hope. And so, Lord, we thank you. And we pray that we would come into this new year with eyes clear. Lord, with hearts that are ready to sing and praise you. Lord, with, with spirits that are focused on your word and what you call us to do, realizing that you are faithful. So, Lord, we pray you would just continue to show your faithfulness, to be merciful to us, and lead us in the way everlasting. Father, we pray that your will would be done now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.